This podcast has explicit content, but that will be nothing compared to how explicit we get at our live show in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, which might be tomorrow, might be today, depending on when you listen to podcasts. Tuesday, November 28th at the Hamilton Theater, Washington, D.C. Come see us. Go to Slate.com slash live for more information explicitly. Monday, November 27th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Tonight on the network news, which I checked, is an institution that still exists. A new generation of anti-smoking ads will debut. What they lack in sizzle, they make up for in the narrator's flat affect. A federal court has ordered Philip Morris USA, Laura Lard, R.J. Reynolds Tobacco, and Altria to make this statement about the addictiveness of smoking and nicotine. It's great! No, wait, that's not what they said. Smoking is highly addictive. But listen to how she says it. Siri, why so serious? Alexa, was there a death in the family? Yeah, I know. Your Alexa's now going nuts answering the question. I hope you don't find out anything you didn't want to know. The bluntness, though, is intentional. These ads are the result of an 11-year court fight. Well, eight years plus smoking breaks. The tobacco companies resisted embracing this language, but anti-smoking advocates won. And these are what's called corrective statements. All cigarettes cause cancer, lung disease, heart attacks, and premature death. Lights, low-tar, ultralights, and naturals. There is no safe cigarette. And so... After 11 years, after appeals, after dickering about wording, these are, in fact, the phrases that will be relayed to the youth of America via television stations and newspapers, to which the youth of America say, what is a television or a newspaper? Because in the 11 years that they dickered and bickered, the kids tuned out. I have stats from 2015, and in 2015, among 18 to 24-year-olds, The percent who read a daily newspaper yesterday was 16%. Among 25 to 34-year-olds, it was only 17%, which is to say millennials, the target of this ad, 85 or so percent of them will not be even consuming the media that the ads are played in. TV viewing had a similarly precipitous decline. The average 18 to 24-year-old in 2011 spent 23 hours a week watching TV. Now it's down to 14. I don't have the survey numbers going back from 2006, but there was a huge decline from then too. So what this all says is that in the 11 years the tobacco companies fought, they lost on language. And as a result, the message they didn't want getting out, as monotonal as it is, that message is indeed getting out. The thing is, it will only be reaching about a quarter of the audience it would have reached 11 years ago. A federal court has ordered Altria, R.J. Reynolds Tobacco, Laura Lard, and Philip Morris USA to make this statement about the health effects of smoking. If you started smoking 11 years ago, you just might now be hearing the message that would have convinced you not to start in the first place. Our bad. On the show today, I spiel about the wacky next door neighbor. Is it the home improvement guy? The part of him you see is the eyes? Is it Marcy Darcy barging into the Bundys? No, no, it's even wackier than that. He's a Nazi, the nice Nazi next door. But first, he has advocated for the Contras in Nicaragua and regime change in Iraq. That did not go that well. Elliot Abrams was in the middle of a couple of the most consequential policy decisions undertaken by Republican administrations in the last 40 years. And he and I disagree a lot. But even Abrams looks at the course the U.S. is undertaking at this moment, and he is distraught. A conversation that was a little bit more convivial than I thought it would be without my playing with kid gloves. Here's Elliot Abrams. 
Elliot Abrams is Senior Fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, and he has served many presidents as Assistant Secretary for State for Human Rights under Ronald Reagan, Deputy National Security Advisor for George W. Bush, and he has also handled Middle East policy for the White House. I think the official title was the Senior Director for Near East and Northern African Affairs. His new book is Realism and Democracy, American Foreign Policy After the Arab Spring. Thank you for coming on, Mr. Abrams. My pleasure. So you let's let's lay out terms. You contrast realism with uh, real politic, which is that Germanic phrase so often applied to Henry Kissinger. Uh, define your terms for me, if you will. I'm really contrasting realism uh, or fake realism and support for democracy, because I think a lot of realists would take the view that it's not realistic to think that there can be a development of democracy in the Arab world. Well, you know, the Arab world is not going to be able to do this for 100 years or 200 years. It's impossible. It's hopeless. And by opening up the political systems, you're going to make it possible for uh, jihadis and other extremists to take power. And the argument in the book really is, no, no, no. Abandoning democracy is actually very unrealistic and supporting the expansion of democracy is realism, Israel politique. That's the argument. Okay. I agree with that on principle, and I agree with that as a as a goal. However, let's talk about the actual countries that went through the Arab Spring. It did not really work out for most of the populations of any of them, possibly with the exception of Tunisia. What went wrong? Well, I think you're right. Tunisia is the great exception that, you know, we'll always have Tunisia. So <laughs> you, you cannot argue that democracy is impossible in the Arab world as long as there's Tunisia. And by the way, there are other democracies in the broader Muslim world from Senegal to Indonesia. I mean, there are a number of examples. But you said what went wrong? First is chaos. Chaos is perhaps the greatest enemy of peaceful development toward democracy. Take Egypt. You know, you had a dictator for 30 years, Hosni Mubarak, who deliberately tried to prevent a sensible, moderate, democratic, liberal, secular, use whatever word you want, center from developing. He repressed the center more viciously than he repressed the Muslim Brotherhood, partly because he wanted to use it to say to us in the United States, it's me or the Brotherhood. So when the system collapses, as it did after Tahrir Square, who's ready to take power? The Islamists, in this case, the Muslim Brotherhood guys, are organized, and they're ready to get together and try to win an election. The moderates are not ready. They have had no experience with politics. They've not really been allowed to run in elections. So in the first election, I think you'd have to say, they're likely to win, and that is the fault of the dictators. But it's the fault of the United States also. He was he was our man. We spent so many years and so much treasure and so much diplomacy propping that guy up. Yep, this is absolutely right. I can think of a two-year period, roughly, 2004 to six where we stopped doing that, where we put pressure on him to open the political system and the pressure worked. Uh-huh. And by but, the way, who was the, uh, who was the NSC's director of that region during that two-year period? 
Aw, shucks. <laughs> but, you know, this is an old story of the United States doing this. And what I argue in the, in the book is, you know, this takes us back to the Cold War. The idea was we have to back right-wing dictators everywhere because if not, it's the communists. The communists will take over. And many Americans genuinely believe that for a very long time. And we started seeing that this is not really right with President Kennedy and the Alliance for Progress. And Kennedy makes a speech in 1962 announcing the Alliance for Progress development programs in Latin America. And he says, those who make peaceful evolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable. If, if the thesis is that we made mistakes by propping up Mubarak, how does this fit in with, say, looking at El Salvador, right? Which is during the Reagan administration, you were instrumental in that policy. We very much supported Duarte. He was a lot like Mubarak. He was a right-wing dictator, no? No, 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 no. Wrong. Wrong. There was a military government in El Salvador, and we did obviously intervene on behalf of Duarte, who is a Christian Democrat. From that time when we started intervening, we actually started under Carter, but much, much more under Reagan, El Salvador has been a democracy and remains one today. Parties come and go. The Christian Democrats have won and lost. The right-wing party has won and lost. And today, somebody who was in the FMLN, the communist guerrillas, is president because he won a free election. So our intervention on behalf of democracy in El Salvador worked. It helped them become a democracy. And now, what is it, 35 years later, it's still a democracy. Well, it's one That's of the a most successful dis- experiment. It's one of the most dysfunctional countries in our hemisphere. It has, I think, the second highest murder rate in the world. You cannot change the whole society. The one thing you can do is help the people of the country be able to elect who they want to govern them. Mm-hmm. We did that in El Salvador. I mean, if you think El Salvador is dysfunctional, try Venezuela, which is not a democracy, you know, where the people have no opportunity to decide who governs them and how. So. In the book, you talk about some of the differences between countries where the Arab Spring occurred or almost occurred, and you make a big distinction between the kingdoms and the dictatorships. Could you talk about that a little? Yes, it's very interesting, actually, that none of the monarchs have been overthrown. And I think the reason for that can be summed up in the word legitimacy. That is, if you look at these what I call fake republics like Libya or Egypt, Syria, Yemen, Tunisia, the guys running these places had no legitimacy at all, none. They just ruled by brute force. They didn't have the legitimacy of good performance, effective performance that you might see some of, for example, in China today. They didn't have the legitimacy of democracy, obviously. They didn't have the legitimacy of monarchy. In some of the Arab cases, um, Morocco, Jordan, and the Gulf monarchies, In some cases, they've been around for a very long time. In some cases, they are descendants of the prophet. And they have some legitimacy. We can debate exactly how much, but it is not zero. Once you install and support and prop up a dictator who comes to think of himself as well, they're usually the richest person in the country, and they come to think of themselves as something of a a king, if not a god. And it's a tough position for the United States to be in, but it seems to me that once you start giving those guys money or the leaders of Pakistan money or countenancing whatever's going on in Saudi Arabia, you're not going to get a smooth transition of power in the end. Well, I basically agree with you. I mean, I had a conversation, uh, I guess it's a year ago now, with Mikhail 
Khodorkovsky, who the Russian uh, dissident who'd been put in jail uh, by Putin for 10 yeah. years. Former and, oligarch who had his fortune stripped. And yeah. Yes. He made a very interesting comment, which was, do you know what Gorbachev did when he lost power? I said, no. He said, Gorbachev went home. He just went home. And the reason he could go home was he was not a thief. But the vast majority of dictators are gigantic thieves, and they know that if they ever lose power, they're going to go to jail, if not for human rights violations and just because they've stolen everything that they can get their hands on. And that is why Mubarak uh, and his sons went on trial. Maybe that should give me hope for the Ayatollah. <laughs> He's probably not. A well, there is a lot of corruption the guys, there. There's corruption. But of all the guys we're talking about, and they live, uh, I, I guess, well, but of all the guys we're talking about, they have the fewest gold palaces and private zoos. They may have uh, the fewest compared to some dictators, but I gather that to be atop Ayatollah in Iran is a very cushy life. And in yeah. fact, they do live in very large and beautiful mansions. Okay, I want to kind of hopscotch around a few uh, foreign policy questions. It was widely reported that President Trump interviewed you for a job, uh, possibly in the State Department, but you were quite vocal saying that he is not qualified to be president. If if indeed you did entertain that job, would it have been to prevent the abyss as a <laughs> uh, as an American who just hears a call of duty, like they say, why General Mattis took the job? Well, the position I took after the election was any Republican who is asked to go into the administration basically should do it. You know, we've got one president at a time. We have one country. And if you have an opportunity to do some good, you think you can do some good, then uh, you ought to say yes. You're not going to make the government any more effective by saying no. Now, the last thing I want to ask you about, because not only have I read your book, I read your writing in uh, National Review and Foreign Policy. So I want to ask you, uh, looking back at Iraq, there were many documented intelligence failures that went on within the executive branch of government. But I'll just give you a second or two to tell me what your characterization of that is. Well, if you're talking about the Iraq war, yes, um, my characterization is that... Uh, our intelligence agencies and every other with which I am familiar, German, British, French, Israeli, said that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction programs that were ongoing. I don't believe that even in the period since then, there have been any revelations that suggest otherwise. So I think the president acted on the basis of the best intelligence that then existed. So then when we look at the result of what's happened, a government that is trying to establish itself as a democracy and is, you know, not sponsoring state terrorism anymore when it can help it. So that's for the good. And also ousting Saddam Hussein. That's uh, that's a good thing that happened for the world. But of course, the cost was a couple trillion dollars and at least, you know, 150,000 civilians dead and 4,000 Americans dead. Was that worth it? Well, I would put it a different way. Uh, first, um, if we had not thought that he was developing weapons of mass destruction, would we have done it? Should we have done it? I'd say no. Secondly, I get back to that chaos question. Um, because if you remember, the, the military intervention of the first, what, month or something uh, was very successful. And then Iraq collapsed into chaos and violence and civil war mm -hmm. and terrorism. Why did that happen? I think that is the deeper and more significant question. Could it have been avoided? Uh, I think the decision to take apart the Iraqi army 
to take so many officials down as yeah. having been part of the bath party. Yeah, in left, a word, debathification is what happened. Debathification, but also eliminating the army entirely left a situation in which there was just pure chaos and that led to civil war. Uh, and it took us a long time to figure that out. To a lot of Americans in the government, it looked like we were fighting terrorists and it took literally, I would say, three years to figure out, no, this is a civil war. That is what you need to avoid, a complete breakdown of order in the society, because only the worst people in the society will benefit from it and take advantage of it. And this is the last question I want to ask you, and I don't want you to think that I'm being rude or trying to be snide when I bring this up, but uh, it is true that you got a presidential pardon for misdemeanors for your testimony before Congress. I am wondering, just because you're in this position, when Donald Trump gave his pardon to Sheriff Arpaio, did you think that you've, you're one of the few people I could talk to who've <laughs> been granted a presidential pardon? What did you think of that use of the presidential pardon? And the second part is maybe I'll ask you about the possibility of presidential pardons around the Russian investigations. Let's take them one by one. What do you think of the Arpaio pardon? thought it was a mistake for a variety of reasons. One of them was that the legal proceedings were not completed. So it was an, it was an intervention. And I think pardons really are meant to be used after the completion of any legal judicial processes that are going to take place. I also think that he defied the law in a way that, in a sense, undermines the rule of law. I'm no expert on exactly what he did and didn't do, but certainly it's true that the president acted early. And what do you think of pardons that may be given just based on what we know so far of the Manafort indictment or what uh, General Flynn is alleged to have done? I, I myself think it would be, first, it's much too early for anything. That's right. Secondly, I actually think that pardons should be used to right injustices. Or at the end of a very long period when, you know, someone may have been in jail for a very long time, I think the investigations that are underway now may well reveal actual criminal behavior. We'll find out. But until you find out, it seems to me uh, premature. Unless you conclude, if you're willing to conclude, this is a complete witch hunt, which is a very big conclusion to reach about judicial procedures, I would think you wait until it's all over. Yeah, you and then won't look be able back on it. You won't be able to convince anyone who's not already on board with that opinion if you act prematurely with a pardon. It will seem like right. part of a strategy, a defense strategy rather than as you put it writing a wrong. That's my view. All right. Oh yeah, by the way, when she got that pardon, I read that you were sentenced to a $50 fine, probation for 2 years and 100 hours of community service. Did you get the 50 bucks back? You really never get the 50 bucks back. It's you actually kind did. of court costs, so that's uh, sort of um, lost forever. How much community service did you do? I don't remember, actually. Um, I worked with a very um, interesting organization called the National, National Committee for Neighborhood Enterprise, which was working on reviving some inner city communities. It's actually, um, it was a useful thing to do. Elliot Abrams is the author of Realism and Democracy, American Foreign Policy and the Arab Spring. He has served in a couple of presidential administrations. Thank you so much. Good to talk with you.
now the spiel. Over the four-day weekend, what, you only had a two- or three-day weekend? What, do you work for the post office? A bank? The Dallas Cowboys? So anyway, sometime in the recent past, the New York Times ran a profile of a Nazi. But the guy seemed really normal. He ate bread, not hardtack. He wore t-shirts, not lederhosen. He listened and indeed played heavy metal music, not Wagner. He registered for a muffin pan for his wedding, not a Panzerkampfwagen. So since those things seemed normal, the Times was accused of normalizing the guy, the guy, the Nazi. Though, with a muffin pan on the wedding registry, he was a surprisingly easy Nazi to shop for, wasn't he? Not a wedding registry Nazi him, you know, just a, just a regular Nazi Nazi. Normalizing, like humanizing, is one of those words that seems to have a pretty solid definition, but actually can mean different things. Since everyone's human, humanizing someone would seem to be the easiest undertaking in all of journalism. And if you think xenophobia, ignorance, and hateful thoughts aren't a normal part of the human condition, you haven't been paying attention to the human condition. Times readers like Beatrice Shapiro of Silverton, Oregon, writes, The subheadline of this article is seeking acceptance in the mainstream. Well, mission accomplished. The New York Times just normalized Nazi sympathizers. So did the reporter, Richard Fawcett, accept the Nazi in question? He did not. Did he normalize him? Well, in writing about the normal things the Nazi did, I suppose you can conclude that some parts of him are normal. In writing about the horrific views the Nazi had, he didn't do anything to give those views credence. But he did all this in the mamby-pamby style that the Times sometimes takes. For a profile like this to work, you need a couple instances where the subject really shows his fangs, really discredits himself in some way. Right after the Charlottesville rally, Vice aired a documentary where they followed a neo-Nazi, a couple neo-Nazis. And while some criticized any effort to allow those people near a microphone, mostly the doc was hailed as illuminating because it was quite clear how repellent the subject was. I'm carrying a pistol. I go to the gym all the time. I'm trying to make myself more capable of violence. I'm, I'm here to spread ideas, talk, in the hopes that somebody more capable uh, will, will come along and do that. Somebody like Donald Trump who does not give his daughter to a Jew. So Donald Trump, but like more racist. Yeah, a lot more racist than Donald Trump. Nothing muffin pan wedding registry about that. Even the opening montage of the Vice documentary was underscored by ominous music. These people were made to seem vicious, and they are. Jews will not replace us! Jews will not replace us! So is the Vice portrayal more accurate? Well, it certainly adheres to the audience's expectations of what neo-Nazis are like, and it gives the audience the emotional catharsis of presenting the Nazi as obviously wallowing in how shocking he's being. But when you think about it, is that really the way all modern Nazis think or act? They must have other ways of seducing a, say, disaffected libertarian who's searching for answers and maybe playing in a heavy metal band. A problem, though, was that the Times' overly polite journalistic style got in the way of what it needed to do. It needed to vilify, because the subject was deserving of vilification. Take this graph. After he attended the Charlottesville rally, in which a white nationalist plowed his car into a group of left-wing protesters, killing one of them, Mr. Hoviter, that's the Nazi in question, wrote that he was proud of his comrades who joined him there. We made history. Hell, victory. And then the Times notes in German, Hail Victory is Sig Heil. 
I don't know what the Times or this author thought the clarification of Hail Victory, meaning Zig Heil, was trying to do in that sentence. Uh, was this a nail in the coffin? Haha, ha, we got him. I'd have rewritten that like this. After he attended the Charlottesville rally, Mr. Hoveter wrote that he was proud of his comrades who joined him there. Quote, we made history, hell victory. And then I'd have written, of course, during that rally, a white nationalist plowed his car into a group of left-wing protesters, killing one of them, which Mr. Hoveter dismisses as, and then you get a quote. You work until you get a quote where he reveals what his heart is about that death. In fact, a more forceful challenging of Hoverter could have served the audience at times. Either he'll back down from his convictions to try to seem palatable, or he'll have to expose himself as the extremist he is. Here, take this part. Quote, this is from the article. He declared the widely accepted estimate that 6 million Jews died in the Holocaust, quote, overblown. The widely accepted estimate. And it's containing a hyperlink. And the hyperlink takes you to an article in the Israeli liberal newspaper Haaretz. Yes, I'm sure that is going to knock some sense into the alt-right. Oh, wait, it's a paywalled article in Haaretz. That will do wonders to disabuse the notion that Jews are A, rapacious, and B, control the media. I'd have said to the guy, okay, you say six million is too big. You, uh, you think it's an overestimate. What if it's half that? What if you're right? Are you saying three million dead civilians wouldn't discredit your ideology? What's the number of acceptable Jews killed, Muffin Man? Let's see what he does with that. I don't know if the challenging questions were asked. Certainly doesn't seem so. Sometimes you get to the nut of a subject, you just let him reveal himself. But sometimes you have to push him and you have to press him and you have to put him in an extreme situation so that he answers from the gut with what he feels in his gut. After reading this piece, I went back and read a couple others of the genre. One was The New Yorker's Birth of a White Supremacist by Andrew Morantz. There were details in there that could be called normalizing. They talked about the crappy audio equipment this Nazi used. They discussed this Nazi's craft, such as it was in uh, broadcasting. But they also wrote things about the Nazi in question, like how he suffered from eczema as a kid and how his family went through a painful divorce. So I guess you could say that's normalizing or sympathizing, but the profile worked because the subject's own words made clear just how hateful he was. Then there was Mother Jones reporter Shane Bauer who went, quote, undercover with a border militia. That article worked really well, too. It had some advantages the Time story didn't have, mostly because it had a lot of events happening. There was a lot of momentum as opposed to just a profile on the Muffin Man goose stepper. But Shane Bauer also quoted his extremists saying things that were really extreme. The Nazi in the Times story was afforded the opportunity to offer something sanitized, which wasn't sufficiently jostled by the reporter or the Times style. However, I do think the story was far from a total failure. Daniel Dale of the Toronto Star tweeted, there's a genre of profile journalism that lets the subject hang themselves by their own words. But sometimes the words are not obviously inaccurate enough to everyone that it's dangerous. I think that's fair, but I think this isn't. This one's from an academic in England named, I'll butcher the name, Jasmine Mujanovic. He writes, the New York Times Nazi fluff text is only further proof that at a fundamental level, large segments of the U.S. intelligentsia do not appreciate the existential crisis now facing their republic. In short, they're not actually concerned, and they really should be. As I said, not fair. 
And I based my assessment on this. I read the story before I was aware of the outrage. I like to open the paper, crinkle it before going online. To me, there were good details in there. The foray into libertarianism that seems to be a hallmark of many Nazis today, crediting Pat Buchanan and Charles Murray as intellectual influences, subtle burn, and just the humdrum casting about for answers of the nature of this guy, who is obviously awful because he is a Nazi. I didn't need the, and you know, Nazis are bad part. I know about the Nazis, but I get why some more details of this particular guy's particular ugliness would have improved the story. But to me, it was a fairly well done dive into, as Hannah Arendt put it, the banality of evil. But the criticism was pretty clear. When delving into the banality of evil, we'd like a little less banality and a lot more evil. And that's it for today's show. More people die every year from smoking than from murder, AIDS, suicide, drugs, just producer Pierre Bienname, car crashes, and alcohol combined. Just producer Mary Wilson controls the impact and delivery of nicotine in many ways, including designing filters and selecting cigarette paper to maximize the ingestion of nicotine. Why, Mary? Why? Children exposed to Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, are at an increased risk for acute respiratory infections, ear problems, severe asthma, and reduced lung function. The gist, now available in menthol. Peru, 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 and thanks for listening.